socially constructing aging in a totally different way. That it is a developmental period of life that is full of opportunities and full of gratifications and um, is something that that once you start to see it that way, it affects how you behave in the world. A scholar, researcher, professor, author of many, many books, and contributor and editor of others, Dr. Mary Gergen is also co-founder of the Taos Institute. She talks to me about feminist social construction, positive aging, and how our lives are storied. And so many more little anecdotes she shares with us in this show. A little more context. This season of Positivity Strategist is a collaboration with the Taos Institute. We're focusing on the topic of constructionist practices and social innovation. And I'm your host, Robin Stratton Burkessel. Mary, you've had a very rich history in this field of social construction. And I'd love to start our conversation today with an invitation to you to talk about you and your practices of social construction. You have so much to offer and we could go anywhere with this. So my invitation is, how might you enter into that, into starting talking about you and your practices of social construction? Thank you. That is a huge question because I would say that at this point in my life and for at least 27 years, social construction has been a guiding philosophy of my life. It is uh, something that I love to share with other people because there's something so forgiving and exciting and helpful. I was going to say hopeful, and it's also hopeful uh, as a philosophy and uh, something that I think would help us have a more peaceful and fruitful world. For me, the one could say that one can always have a doubt about something, but that sounds a little negative. Um, another way of thinking about it is that you can always say, or it could be otherwise. So, for example, um, if you go to the doctor and you hear all kinds of things about the dangers of the drinking you do or the eating you do or the couch potatoing you do, um, that somehow um, you're a bad person and you have to think about that all the time. But there are other ways to think about things. And when you're not in the doctor's office, you might decide that you're going to think about things differently. That being said, it's as though that you always have to be a little insecure about your opinions or what you believe to be true or the way you think the world has to be. I'll give an example. Introductory psychology is full of diverse 
narratives about our psyches. If you look at Freudian theory, you talk about intra-psychic phenomena. You talk about psychoanalysis. You talk about the id and the ego and the superego. If you study Skinner and behaviorism, you never talk about those things. You talk about forms of reinforcement. So you have two different ways to think about the nature of you as a person. So I thought, as a social constructionist, I can say to my students, there are six or more different ways that we can construct what it is to be a human being. And so what we're going to learn are these six different versions of psychology. Because often textbooks will try to put them together as though they're a unified scientific field. And if I had to do that, if I had to say, this is true, and there were six different ways, we can live with the possibility that sometimes we want to talk about our ego or our id, and other times we might want to talk about our cognitive processes, or we might want to talk about our environment and how the environment is shaping us. So that's just delving into the depth of one way of using social construction to try to make peace, if you will, with the different narratives that are parts of an introductory psychology course. Personally, for me, who am I? Um, how do I get along in the world? How should I conduct myself? Well, I have to say, there are many stories that could be told. I think one of the things about social constructionism is that it's a very close friend of storytelling, mm -hmm. that we are telling ourselves stories all the time about who we are or where we came from or our family relations. You could say that going to therapy, for example, what you're doing is you're trying to create a story that is more comforting or more unifying or more satisfying in some fashion than the painful psychological state you may have been in. So I think, I think I'm trying to give you a sense of how we can never know a truth, mm -hmm. but on the other hand, we can build stories of existence of ourselves, of our relations that are somehow allowing us a path forward, allowing us pleasure, allowing us relaxation, allowing us motivation to move into the future. Mm. I think that's a wonderful answer in um, giving us a little background there and, and your approach I mean, how it's informed your life. Um, and I understand, Mary, that you continue to do some teaching and contribute to the Institute and you run the newsletter Positive Aging, which I'll get to, and you travel the world giving talks and performances. 
Um, and you publish, I, I, you know, you have chapters in the um, SAGE Handbook of Social Construction Practice, and you publish from this feminist social constructionist perspective. So um, is this, maybe you'd like to say a little bit about how that feminist social constructionist perspective um, came into being. Yes, yes. Well, it's very unpopular among <laughs> many feminist scholars. Um, and I think it still is unpopular, but not as unpopular as when I first got involved with it. Mm -hmm. um, I um, divided feminist scholars into three groups. The first group is what I call the empiricist feminist psychologists and scholars. And, and they pretty much want to follow along in the, what you might call the masculine dominant field of uh, empirical studies. That is, they want to do surveys and experiments and um, mm -hmm. try to figure out exactly what it means like to be a woman or to be a man. Mm -hmm. um, then there is a second group, which are called the standpoint feminists, and they want to say that being a woman is an embodied experience that gives you the truth about the world and the truth about nature. So whatever is said by a woman about her status and who she is, and this applies to other groups as well, then that's the truth. Then you go from that as the base. And I, of course, want to take a social constructionist position, which says being a woman is, a, is something that we story historically, and that it changes over time. And in terms of your social class, in terms of your race, in terms of, of uh, whether you're in 1920 or 2020. Mm -hmm. um, 100 years ago, by the way, it was the suffragettes marching outside of the White House um, that allowed us to claim our right to vote. So it's been 100 years of feminist development in the United States. I believe that being what it means to be a woman, what it means to have relations among the genders, it's all open. And I think if you look now at the incredible changes going on in the definition of what not only gender is, but what biological sex is, or how we should define sex, what sex am I? Um, it shows social constructionism in action because it is shifting now yeah. incredibly, incredibly in a way that we used to say gender, yes, that was socially constructed, but not sex. Mm -hmm. Now everything is open to mm -hmm. question. Yeah, that's so beautiful. What comes to me is, you know, you're, you're giving example through this question of what you were saying earlier about the fluidity, the ease, the flow of accepting there are multiple ways of being and, and doing in the world. And the other thing too, Mary, that you highlight for me as I'm listening is the significance of context. And um, 
I have this view that without a context, there's no meaning. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you might respond to that. Um, but that's how I see it. You know, you really need to appreciate and understand the context. And that kind of also speaks to this ability to be accepting and understanding and forgiving. Any Is there any of this kind of resonating for you? in the way that you're describing this? Yes, yes, and appreciating. I think that's the last word you wanted to add to your list, to appreciate um, possibilities and differences and, and changes that occur. Just before Mary continues, let's have a word from our partner in the show and the executive director, Dawn Dole. The Taos Institute is a nonprofit educational organization Our mission is to bring together scholars and practitioners as they explore the social construction of reason, knowledge, and human values, and their applications. If you want to learn more about our work in social constructionism, just visit us at taosinstitute.net. One of the things that's going on right now, which I want it to go in a certain way that it hasn't yet, but this idea of trying to move relationships and being in a relational context beyond humans. Uh I mean, we can do it pretty easily if we think of our pets, you know, that we have important relationships with our pets. But we also are in relation to our computer and our desks and our chairs and our coffee cups and that all of it is that it's context but on the other side it's beyond context because it's it's uh, giving off qualities characteristics messages if you will that we uh, participate in creating we co-create the meaning even of our bodies in space. So that's the sort of the new moves that are being made where we go beyond the uh, social into what some people call the material. Mm-hmm. But for yes. me, the material is also constructed. The material does not exist outside of interpretation either. So. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, that speaks to, I've just been discovering and exploring this notion of entanglement. Uh Uh Uh-huh. And um, so I I can't say much about it other than I love the word. (laughs) It represents to me, you know, our interdependence, interrelationships, all of these things, interconnectedness that, you know, go off in a spiritual realm. And as you're describing here, also speaks to how we, connect with the um, other objects in our life. I mean, the things that make our life possible today. So very interesting. Um, Yes, we could go off in so many interesting ways, but I'd like you to um, talk a little bit about how, how you might describe your current situation, Mary, when it comes to the contribution you continue to make. And I'm thinking about you know, do you say you're working? Do you say you're semi-working? Do you say you're not working? And I'm consciously not using the word retired. Mm-hmm. 
So mm-hmm. how, you know, how do you see yourself fitting in this continuum of being a contributor to our worlds? Yeah, very, very much. I feel like I am connected and contributing in the world. Um, I just don't get a paycheck. (laughs) But the other side of it is that I have a lot more responsibility for selecting how I go about doing things in the world. And uh, so uh, I love the Taos Institute and I do things for it uh, every day, I would say. Um, I help to edit books and I work on the Positive Aging newsletter, and that includes keeping an eye out. I mean, I have a great excuse to read just about anything, looking for something about positive aging. Uh, And so I don't think too much about whether I have a job or not. In fact, I feel sorry for people who have jobs um, in the sense of, you know, no, it's a snowy day and you have to go out and clean the frost off your windshields or something. And I don't have to do that. Mm. And um, that's, a, that's great. That I, and I don't have to go to meetings I don't want to go to. I don't have to do anything hardly that I don't want to do. So that's a, that's a real plus in the world, I would say. Yeah. Um, you have lots of choices that you can actually enact, <laughs> take up and enact. Yes. yes. In, fact, in fact, this uh, last, last summer, there was uh, uh, some advertisement, it could be just fantasy here, um, about writing plays that could be given in places where there are a lot of older people who would like to do a little play for 20 minutes or something and wouldn't need much in the way of scenery or, you know, the costly things of a theater. And I actually wrote a play just for the fun of it. And that's not something you could probably do if you had a full-time job. Unless you were a playwright, of course. But, yeah, but that's so super that you can do that and get the enjoyment out of that. So you've mentioned the, uh, the, the, news, uh, the, the Positive Aging Newsletter. Right. And um, now you and your partner, Ken Gergen, um, who's currently president of the TARS Institute, um, co-created this newsletter, correct? This digital newsletter. Yeah, we, we did. It, it, it uh, began as something that was um, not so electronic, but now it, it is definitely an electronic newsletter. But I do want to talk about it because it's a, a great sort of missionary spirit we bring to the Positive Aging Newsletter and to the idea of socially constructing aging in a totally different way, that it is a developmental period of life that is full of opportunities and full of gratifications and um, is something that that once you start to see it that way, it affects how you behave in the world. Mm. So once you see that you are full of potential as an aging person, then and that there are things that you acquire that young people don't have yet, um, 
you begin to take a certain pride in yourself. And pride and self-respect go a long way to making possible all sorts of outcomes that perhaps you never thought you could uh, have as you aged. Yes, yes, because, you know, I'm a recipient, obviously, as, um, as a, an associate of the Taos Institute of the Positive Aging Newsletter. And I'm, and in preparation for our conversation today, Mary, I looked at the most recent um, edition that came out. Uh-huh. And, um, and just kind of refreshing myself with the flow of that newsletter, you know, you, you explore aging not as a time of decline, but a time of growth. So there's that, you know, flipping it to what's possible instead of the traditional perspective. So I'd say more, if you will, about, you know, maybe the social innovations that you see with the possibility of our older population. Yeah, um, I was just reading uh, yesterday something that I'm going to put in the next one that had to do with older workers and that generally older workers have been, um, they've been the object of discrimination Mm -hmm. and very often get passed over for promotions or they don't get the training or there are difficulties. And the professor at the University of Pennsylvania that I was reading yesterday was saying that in every category of job performance, older workers, and these are workers in their 60s generally, um, outdo the younger workers. And part of it is that their experience has given them insights into the way a company works or the job works or the surrounding competitors or the suppliers or whoever you're partnering with work, that that they are able to function in a way that is more skillful, uh-huh. more thoughtful than the younger workers who haven't had the experiences yet. And so uh, he claims that there isn't much variability in terms of whether or not younger or older workers shine the brightest, older workers are better than younger workers. Um, That's one side of things in terms of the workplace. And so to discriminate against older workers or try to get rid of them or, you know, downgrade their performances and then give them very little in terms of raises and so forth is counterproductive to companies Mm. because they're wasteful of their most valuable assets. Mm. So that was something I'm going to put in the newsletter next time. I think Um, that's really valuable. Um, And let me give you a reason why, just personally. So, um, I mean, I teach um, advanced applications of appreciative inquiry at Champlain College online and been doing that for several years. And very oftentimes, um, my students will say that they find the older um, members of their um, workforce are often resistant to change. And they they use kind of deficit-based language, which we, you know, we work on, um, like they're... um, they're stuck and so on. So what might be a nice thing that you can offer me that I can 
um, help my students see through so the lens of social construction how we might change that perspective, that they're not stuck. I mean, you know, sure, there are individuals who are stuck, right? But yeah. as a generalisation, what might be some of the things that we can talk about as opposed to the deficits that people focus on, you know, by nature oftentimes? Yes, well, I think one of the things that um, happens is that older people pick up on whatever the stereotypes are. Mm -hmm. So um, often um, people, whatever they, whoever they are, if they're women, if they're a minority group, if they're old, um, believe in the stereotypes and this is self-handicapping. Mm -hmm. and, and so, for example, it's kind of widely known that older people are very resistant to technology. And so, so you get afraid when you face certain things because you're old and therefore you shouldn't be able to do them. And um, it's like girls and mathematics. There's research that shows that if you remind girls that they're girls when they're doing a math test, they do worse than when they're not reminded that they're girls um, because of the stereotypes. Mm. So. It's also true from what I was reading yesterday um, that the biggest problem in terms of relations in companies is that younger managers, and that's who your students probably are, right. are um, not very understanding of the older workers, and the older workers are a bit not understanding the younger workers, mm -hmm. that that tension is the crux of the tensions in companies, that large companies especially, where you have groups of young managers on the move and older workers who have pretty much done their moving mm -hmm. in many ways. And so I wonder if the stereotype, the younger ones have about reluctance to change or do things that are technological is in part their stereotype and maybe they have um, built it and they have sold it you might say to the older people um, so that they believe in it too. Yeah it's like reinforcing and I think what you know, what I'm hearing is that, you know, it comes down to engaging with each other and really listening to each other's stories. Yes. And um, when we can do that, then we can change the narrative. You know, we can change that stereo. I mean, there's a stereotype, but we can begin to live ourselves into a very different future. Um, and that's what's so liberating. Yes, yes. Let's hear again from Dawn Dole a little bit more about what the Taos Institute offers. Taos Institute Publications has been publishing books for the past 20 years. The books offer the reader a glimpse into the theory and practice of social construction from many perspectives. One of our best sellers is the book Social Construction Entering the Dialogue by Kenneth and Mary Gergen. 
see all the Taos Institute publications, visit taosinstitutepublications.net. So another thing too that in looking at the latest version of the Positive Aging newsletter, Mary, is that um, you talk about relationships in the sense that having a strong social network. So again, thinking about how as we engage with, interact with, have relationships with the old generation, what might be the things that we can encourage and you know, bring into the vocabulary, bring into the conversation so that the meaning might shift to a degree of what it means to be on your own or, you know, elderly or whatever it is. So just any other tips that you have that you can share with us right now? Well, I was just uh, thinking about your use of the word elderly. That word is unpopular amongst older people. Great. Nowadays, the favored word is older people. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, now I don't find anything wrong with seniors, but apparently some people don't like that either. But um, the use of pejorative older people words sort of puts people in a category and it's, it's isolating or separating mm-hmm. So language, the language that's used for things is very important. I also find it not great to line people up by their age or making chronological age like a, the keynote of who you are. Mm-hmm. And um, so there have been a couple occasions. For example, I went to a yoga class the other day and the teacher said, who was about, I don't know, 30, said, why doesn't everybody go around and say their name and where they live and how old they are? <laughs> and I thought, I'm not going to do that. I, I don't want to categorize myself by an age, and I don't want to do that with others. And um, chronological age is just one way of measuring who people are. And the, the diversity of what it is to be any age gets greater as you get older, I think, than um, when you're, you know, when you're two or three or four years old. I mean, it's sort of clear how old you are, and there's a lot of similarities among the two-year-olds. Um, I think when you get to be 80 years old, then there's a huge variety of ways people are. Um, So that's one thing, the language issue. Then um, the other thing is I I do think the more you can keep an eye that you and your neighbors and your grandparents and your parents, whatever you have in your life, that social connection is made. That is so important. Um, Social connection is what helps to give you meaning and value in the world. Mm. And if you don't have that, um, then life isn't really worth living. Mm. Yeah, that's a big one that comes up a lot, you know, when you're looking at, um, you know, flourishing and well-being um, across the world. 
And speaking of across the world, you and Ken travelled last year and you went to the opening in Taiwan of the Positive Aging Research and Extension Centre at the National Ping Tung University. <laughs> so, um, so say a little bit about, you know, that uh, that centre and what it aspires to do and what the connection you and Ken and the Tiles Institute um, have with this um, Positive Aging Research and Extension Centre. Well, um, I think it's because of their history, history that the Chinese and on the mainland and in Taiwan um, are attracted to social constructionism and to our ways of doing things and honoring older people has been at least in recent 400 years, um, something that they believe in anyway. Mm. So um, the idea of making older people uh, appreciated, thinking of older people as worthwhile people, is fits so well into the existing Chinese culture. Yeah. More than in Western culture, where especially like in the United States, youth are kind of glamorized or glorified. So... So the Chinese, both on the mainland and in Taiwan, they pick up on everything that the Taos Institute does. And they even have in the mainland, they have something called Taos China. They're not affiliated with us, but they are taking ideas mm -hmm. and developing their own organization from it. But in this case, a woman who was a professor at Pingtung University translated our book, Paths to Positive Aging, into Taiwanese Chinese, which is mm -hmm. old Chinese characters. Mm -hmm. And th this developed for her into becoming a center in her university of positive aging. I mean, that brings in the whole idea of um, the different narratives of aging in different contexts and different cultures. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just curious, you know, are you aware of any sense of convergence about what aging can become, the potentialities across cultures? Um, I, I think that the really important thing, at least in the United States, and I think also in Western Europe and, well, everywhere in the world, the, the populations are aging. And um, there are exceptions where there are many more young people. But in general, whether it's Japan or China or Canada or the United States or Ireland or that there's a huge sort of transition so that the average age of the citizens has increased. And of course, we have our baby boomers. Mm -hmm. And so baby boomers have been people who have learned to manipulate the society to their benefit all along the way. And therefore, now that the baby boomers are older, they're going to make sure that what they are and have and do and 
the laws and the cultural tendencies will benefit them. And so they are um, making a big wave. Now on the other side, by making it a positive aging change, you might say, the socially constructing them as positive, what you do is you increase their profitability for the culture, you might say, that they will work longer, they will contribute more, they will help maintain a high level of cultural activity, and they won't be the sort of drag that was anticipated, mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. If you look, if you go to a symphony, if you go to a museum, if you go to the theater, much theater, and you look around at the gray hairs, sure. without gray hairs, you would have empty halls. Mm. So that the um, older populations are supporting the cultural traditions of many countries. And I hope it's going to work out well enough that there won't be generational warfare, that, that there will be peace and prosperity among all the levels. There are reasons, I think, that there isn't replacement birth. No women are going to want to have children, it seems, or one child being preferred. That is not going to be very helpful, I guess. Hmm. Yeah. And um, yes, you know, I'm just thinking about um, the, for example, I looked at the US census page or on their website, um, but 2020, it says there'll be 74 million people over 64 years of age in the United States. And that's 22.5% of the population. And so we're, you know, we're here, right? So um, that's a big percentage of the population. Now, the other thing that I found really interesting, and I don't want to dwell on it too much because it's going into the deficit, um, but it's, you know, it's an opportunity for us, again, to shift the language. It also referred to a dem this demographic shift is referred often as a grey tsunami. Now, I would love to reframe what that possibility is. And I think some of the things that you've been drawing our attention to is how we might shift that perception of this 22% um, of our population or more is a grey tsunami. Uh, tsunami <laughs> is not exactly a positive Precisely, framing. precisely, yeah. And, yeah. The, and I would add also, and this is kind of getting off on my um, little, you know, high horse here, is how um, solutions to some of our big global issues and how we can build on this experience and intellectual capital of the older um, members of our society and how they can use their voice in ways that might help to address, you know, what the future of this planet could be. Uh, yeah, I believe that it was assumed that older people wouldn't care about the planet or so forth, but it's not the case. Older people are very concerned and they're concerned for their grandchildren. Um, <laughs> I think sometimes that 
relations with one's children could be fraught, but people love their grandchildren, you know, <laughs> without reservation. And so I think older people would like to save the planet for them. And um, I, I wish that the older people would be more active, would express their views more in terms of life giving to the planet. And maybe this is what will come in the future. Very lovely. And I would like to invite you to have the last word in this episode. Um, let me just say before I invite you to do that, it's a quotation of yours, obviously, so that's why I want you to, to cite it. Um, but in this, when people read the show notes for this episode, there will be many links to some of these resources that we're talking about and um, books that Mary has authored and co-authored, just so that you can get a greater sense and how you can find out more, and particularly about the Taos Institute, the Positive Aging Newsletter, and so on. I just thank you from my heart, Mary, and I would love to invite you to take us out. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure uh, being a part of, of your podcast, and um, I wish you good luck, too, with the future ones. Um, so this is me writing. Um, always keep a sort of a creative, rebel-spirited back burner thing going that is alive in you. And if you have to conform to certain kinds of rules and regulations, you do it, I guess. But you keep alive and you be curious and you look outside the limits of the field and you try to influence politically where you can and join together and find others who might be interested in going in the direction you're going in. Be daring, but not foolhardy. <laughs> I wonder who I was addressing there. <laughs> but I think it has such, it's, it's, um, it's everlasting, beautiful words. Thank you, Mary. That was just so much fun and so enjoyable and such a privilege to talk to Dr. Mary Gergen, who is co-founder of our sponsor for the season, and that's the Taos Institute. And please come back next time. Our guest is Dr. Gro Lund from Denmark. Gro exudes enthusiasm as she talks to us about innovation in co-creating increased harmony in schools. And what GROW offers us is equally applicable in varying organizational contexts. Until next time, this is your host, Robin Stratton-Burkessel. <laughs>